0: But it's busy. Life is busy. And I guess I probably definitely don't have the busiest life here. Um, and probably I don't have the, the least busy life here. But I'm guessing all of us, I guess if you're a new mum, you probably uh, feel just so busy that all you really care about is one day you might get some sleep. If you work in business, you probably find that you're filling in uh, forms and you're doing things for local government and for councils and for HR. And, and you just wonder, one day, will I ever actually do any business. If you're a student you wonder if when you're going to get the time to study in around all the lectures and (laughs) socialising. Life is super busy and it whizzes past us and every so often we wonder, will I get peace one day? Will I find peace? Will my soul be at rest? And we're going to look at a couple of Psalms this morning, written by a guy called David. And David points us to the way in which we find rest, in which we find peace in the crazy busyness of life. David was about the busiest guy you could possibly meet. He was the king of a growing nation. He established an empire in his lifetime. That's... that's, that's work, that's effort, that is, he, he was doing all sorts of things, he had all sorts of political things, he also had dozens of children and more than one wife. One wife and a three children seems like a lot to me, but he was busy, he had kids all over here, he was a busy guy, but he said, I've found the secret, I've found the secret, and we're going to look at um, Psalm 23, has anyone heard of Psalm 23 before? Yeah, it's pretty famous, right, probably the most famous chapter in the Bible, maybe, um, and because we like it. And I'm going to read it to you. Actually, can anyone recite it? Does anyone think they can recite it? Is it up on the screen behind me? Okay. Does anyone think they can recite it? No? Oh, you're not, you're not feeling too confident. I'll go for it. You probably could, I reckon. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. That's a great psalm. We love it, right? We love it partly because it's in lots of films, and I think it might be that people who write film scripts only have ever heard of this bit of the Bible. It's what they always quote in any film you ever watch, right? But also we like it because we want it to be true. In the busy craziness of our life, we want this to be true. We want there to be a good shepherd, looking after us. We want to know that there are green pastures and quiet waters. We want to know when we face the hardest things in life, when it feels like we're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, we don't have to fear evil because he's there looking after us. We want to believe that we can eat a feast in the presence of our enemies, that our heads are anointed and that ultimately we will live with God forever. That's what we want to believe. That is why this is such a a famous psalm. This, though, and we think this is about us. You think this psalm is about you, I reckon. 90% of us reckon this psalm was written for us as Christians in our relationship with God. I would argue that this psalm is not primarily about us. This psalm is not primarily our song. You see, that? I think there is only one person who would say, the Lord is my shepherd, I always follow him. That there's only one person who can always lie down in green pastures. There's only one person who can always find quiet waters. There's only one person who always walks in paths of righteousness. There's only one person who can walk through the valley of the shadow of death and fear no evil. There's only one person who has said, Your rod, your staff, they comfort me. That there's only one person who can... Who can have a feast in the presence of his enemies? Only one person who is anointed. Only one person who can say, Goodness and mercy, follow me all the days of my life. Only one person who says, I am worthy to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You know who I'm talking about, right? It's church. The answer is always Jesus, in case you're new here. The answer is always Jesus. It's Jesus. This is actually Jesus' psalm. This is his by rights. This psalm describes his eternal relationship with his father. This is the father-son relationship. This psalm, this song is his song by rights for all of time. I would love it to be true about me and my kids and my friends and you. And it can be. It can be. This can be our song. This shepherd can be our shepherd. This father can be our father. But we enter into it through Psalm 22. Probably not, some of you will know Psalm 22. Some of you are probably not so aware of Psalm 22. Psalm 23. Psalm 22 starts with the line, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it finishes with the line, it is finished. Do you know whose famous last words they are? It's still Jesus. The answer is always Jesus, okay? It's Jesus. They're Jesus' famous last words. As he was dying on the cross, that's what he said. Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? And then finally, as he drew his last, he said, it is finished. And we know those words and they're familiar to us, probably if you've been around church for a while. But imagine you were looking on. Imagine you were John. Because these are pretty depressing things to say as your last words aren't they? They're they're not even as good as Kiss Me Hardy. They are weird, depressing final words. And if you're John, John was Jesus' best friend. John had followed Jesus. He loved Jesus. He was the only disciple not to just totally abandon Jesus. He stood there with Jesus' mother watching his best mate die. And he must have thought, oh, come on. One last miracle. Surely he can pull it out of the bag. Surely this is another one of his great twists. Surely he will just go, boom, and the angels of heaven will come and he'll bring in a new kingdom and it'll all be okay. And then he hears his best friend go, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He must have been, oh, he's given up. That's it. Jesus has has given up. All all that talk, all that bravado on the cross, in front of the Romans and the uh, religious authorities, Jesus has given up. And then finally, when Jesus breathes his last, and says, it is finished. John must have been, that's it, it's finished, I'll just look after Mary and hope that the Messiah comes. That must have been how they felt, how they looked on. And was that it? Was Jesus giving up? Was, he, was that it? Did he think that's it? It's final, it's over, I've lost, I've failed? Of course he didn't. Of course he didn't. He's quoting this Psalm 22 because he is saying, I am willing to put down Psalm 23 and I am willing to take up Psalm 22. Psalm 22, which rightfully belongs to us, he's going to take on. He says the first and the last line because he is saying Psalm 22 will be my song. I will put down my eternal glorious song and I will take up this song So we're going to spend some time in Psalm 22, so if you've got your Bibles, that's probably the passage to uh, dwell in. I'm going to work through it. I might skip some bits. It's a long psalm. There's an awful lot to it. So we will uh, work through it as best we can. But you will hopefully see how Jesus remarkably takes on this psalm. Bearing in mind, this song was written a thousand years before Jesus was born. And it is the most, in my opinion, the most remarkable prophecy in the whole Bible. The astonishing accuracy with which David describes the cross in Psalm 22 and the details that will happen to Jesus is amazing. And you hopefully you'll see that as we go through. So we'll start at the top. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish. My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. My, by night, but I find no rest. You are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the um, one Israel praises. In you our ancestors put their trust. They trusted you and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. These uh, opening verses are a really clever piece of literature. He's outlining what he's about to say. He's explaining something that we maybe miss on first reading. You see, in those verses, there are two there's one person and one group. There is the I, the person saying the psalm, and there is a group of people, Israel. And we know that Jesus is saying, This is me. I am the I. And he's saying, Israel. Israel is that sort of shorthand the Bible uses for the people of God. So it means Israel then, it means the church now. It's that. Group of people of God. And what he's saying is there is a great exchange taking place on the cross. There is something remarkable taking place on the cross. You see, Jesus cries out and gets no answer. Jesus cries out and there is no rest. But at the very same time, something amazing is happening. And if you look through those phrases in there, delivered, saved, no more shame. While Jesus has no rest, the people get delivered, the people get saved, the people get no more shame while he is being shamed on the cross. So this is an idea that people call the great exchange, the great exchange that takes place between us and him. And it's the great exchange between Psalm 22 and Psalm 23. The passage goes on, but I am a worm and not a man. This is Jesus talking about himself. Scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their head. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. What's amazing is those words were spoken a 1,000 years before Jesus' death. David said that in a psalm. And it's kind of weird within the context of that psalm unless you believe that it's Jesus talking about himself on the cross. You see, in Matthew Matthew, um, 27, it says, In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. It's the same thing. It's the same thing that David prophesied a thousand years before. If if he delights in the Lord, let the Lord rescue him. If he can save Israel, let God save him. The Pharisees knew this psalm off by heart. They should have heard their own voices. They should have seen what was happening in front of their very eyes. They should have seen the fulfilment of all Old Testament prophecy happening. But they just cry out. They just cry out. If God wants him, let God save him. The passage goes on. It's not just the religious authorities that can't see who Jesus is. It says, do not be far. I'm going to skip down to verse 11. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me, roaring lions that tear their prey, open their mouths wide against me. If 6, 7 and 8 describe the Pharisees, describe the religious authorities, then 11 to 13 describe the secular authorities, the Roman authorities, the bulls of Bashan, the roaring lions that tear at their prey. You see, when Jesus was arrested, they tortured him. They thought if they lashed him, maybe the people would see that as a good enough punishment. So they took a, a, a whip Which would have had bits of glass and bone and metal in it. And they whipped him 39 times. And they beat him. And they insulted him. And they pushed a crown of thorns onto his head. They tore at their prey, these roaring lions. Jesus goes on to say this, or David says this, and Jesus takes up the words I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and glow over me. They defied my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments." If you know what happened on the cross, you can see That in description, in that description, Jesus, we know that Jesus was so hungry as his life was uh, so thirsty, he cried out for water, and someone brought him wine vinegar on a stick. It says his bones were all out of joint. You see, as he hung on the cross, it would have pulled his arms out. As he was trying to pull himself back up, eventually his arms would have dislocated, and that would have been the thing that killed most people on a cross. It says here that he's, he's, it says here, they pierced my hands and my feet. It's just amazing. A thousand years before, before the punishment of crucifixion had even been invented, David saw something that was going to happen. And Jesus takes up this psalm and said, instead of Psalm 23, I'll take up Psalm 22 that you might enter in. And so they drove nails through his arms and his uh, ankles. And they hung him on a cross. It says here that his bones were on display. And from that whipping, that scourging, that was literally true. The back bones on the back of his back would have been on display. And the final insult, which seems awful, it says they divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Again, just astonishing prophecy. John 19 verse 23 says that the soldiers at Jesus' feet actually were gambling for his clothes as he lay, dying. And so Jesus dies there on that cross. And it seems like it's all over. It seems to John, it seems to everyone, that's it, it's all over. This rebel rouser has come, he's stuck it to the man, but in the end he gets crushed. In the end he loses. But of course we know that isn't the case. We know that isn't the true. You see, as he's laid down in the tomb, the mighty arm of God starts to work. The Holy Spirit moves and Jesus is raised to life. He's raised to life and he rolls the stone away. And he comes out glorious, victorious, beating sin and death. And so verse 19 carries on. Jesus' song doesn't stop there. It says, but you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength, come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of lions, save me from the horn of. Uh, The horns of wild oxen. So God starts to hear, starts to move, starts to rescue him. And as Jesus comes out of the tomb, he starts to go and tell his friends. And we read in verse 22, I will declare your name to my people or to my brothers in the assembly. I will praise you. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He starts telling his mates. He starts going to John and to Peter and going, I'm alive. I've won. It is finished. I have done it. And people like Thomas are like, seems unlikely to me. Yeah, and you know, we can look at Thomas doubting Thomas, but to be honest, it does seem unlikely, right? If you were Thomas, you'd be like, really? But Jesus goes, yeah, look, hole in my side, hole in my wrists, hole in my feet. Yeah, I did it. And it goes on. It says, You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. And you can see in that the start of the early church. You see Pentecost. You see when the people, his brothers, his mates start to stand up and say, Revere him. He's not ashamed. He's not scorned. He is risen. And if you know the story of Pentecost, you can read Peter's speech and you can see great reflection between verses 22 and 24. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of, his, of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but he has listened to the cry for help. And so through the disciples you see the word go out. Three thousand people get saved in Jerusalem. The church starts for the first time as people start to say there is a way from Psalm twenty two, from death and suffering to Psalm twenty three. From to Psalm twenty three to life. To a new way, to a new father, to a new shepherd. But it doesn't stop there. We know it doesn't stop there, and it doesn't stop there. In the passage, he goes on in verses 25 and 26. And I think, to me, you can see the conversion, the, the the death of Stephen, and the conversion of Paul. From you comes the throne of my praise in the great assembly before those who fear you. I will fulfill my work. The poor will eat and be steadfast. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever and so the word goes out it leaves jerusalem people like paul and stephen and philip and peter they take the word out beyond and across the roman empire and so it goes on all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the lord and all the families of the nations will bow down before him for dominion belongs to the lord and he to the lord and he rules over the nations And so we see that we know, historically, that within about 30 years of Jesus' death in that hillside in Jerusalem, the world was changed upside down. The gospel spread to all of the cities of the known world. (coughs) People were becoming Christians all over the place. But we know that the gospel story doesn't stop there. That message that he is risen, that there is a new way, carries on. And I love the end because we finally get a mention. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down in the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations, that's us, will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn. It's us. We are the people yet unborn and it has been declared to us. So Psalm 22, is Jesus because Jesus took up Psalm 22, we get to take up Psalm 23. And it finishes. He has done it. It is finished. And, and actually the story doesn't go then there, does it? We know the story doesn't end there because this will go on. This will uh, go on and one day Jesus will wrap up everything, wrap up time, wrap up uh, the world. And he will start a new time and we will be before him. And we will say, he has done it. And he will say, it is finished. That guy, John, who stood in front of the cross watching his friend die, late, many years later had a vision. And it's written down in Revelation, and it's where he sees the world that as it will be. He sees the return of Jesus. And he says this, after this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. From every nation, tribe, people and language. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So there we see at the end of time the sacrificial Lamb, Jesus. The man who would take up Psalm 22. There being praised at the top of all of creation as he brings everyone And so for us to enter into Psalm 23, Jesus had to take up Psalm 22. Um, But it isn't automatic. Psalm 23 is not automatically the right of every human being born. It comes as we follow him. Um, I I preached this first at a baptism, and I was trying to think of a better example of this than baptism, but there pretty much isn't one. Baptism, if you've seen a, a full immersion baptism, people get baptised into water and they come out again. And if you don't know anything about it, you go, weird. Uh, but it's a symbol of what's happened. You see, we put to death with Jesus and we put to death Psalm 22 and we reason again into Psalm 23. But it's a choice we make. There's a guy um, called Phil Moore. Uh, he leads a church in London. He's a great guy. He's written some really a good series of uh, Bible study books called uh, Straight to the Heart. Um, but he says this about these two passages. He says these two psalms are so inextricably linked. We should describe the shepherd in Psalm 23 as the 23. So I 23. 23 as the blood drenched shepherd. As the blood drenched shepherd. I love the description of David as the shepherd king. And we know that Jesus comes as the true and better shepherd king. In fact, Jesus says it about himself in John 10 verse 11. He says, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And so we see that the sacrificial lamb of Psalm 22 becomes the blood-drenched shepherd of Psalm 23. And there's, we see the great exchange in Psalm 23, we see that the sacrificial lamb becomes the blood-drenched shepherd. We see that because the shepherd king gave up everything, we will not be in want, in verse 1. Because he laid down in death... We lie down in green pastures because he was so thirsty his tongue filled his mouth. We can enjoy living waters that never run run dry because Jesus' soul was turned into as can be restored because Jesus became unrighteousness we can be made righteous because Jesus was forsaken by his father we have the father's name because Jesus walked through the valley of the shadow of death we no longer need fear death or evil because Jesus faced down evil and was separated from God we can know God and not fear evil. Because Jesus was stripped and mocked in the presence of his enemies, we can feast in the presence of ours. Because Jesus had a crown of thorns jammed onto his head, our heads are anointed with oil. Because Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath, that our cup overflows with joy and love. And because Jesus was cast out of the Father's heart, we can live in the house of the Lord forever. What he has done for us is amazing. That he would take on, his, his song was Psalm 23, that was his life, man. And he said, no, for them, I will take on Psalm 22. I will make that my psalm, that horrible, horrible punishment. So we're going to conclude with Communion. And we're going to conclude by thinking about the shepherd king, by thinking about the blood-drenched shepherds of the band want to come back up. And I guess we have a few responses to that. Mostly it's worship, right? Mostly we just worship him. But some of you need to walk into that. Some of you are Christians and you need to walk into Psalm 23. It's totally yours. He's won it for you. He went through Psalm 23 so that all of Psalm Psalm 22 so all of Psalm 23 can be yours. Some of you have never made that decision. And today's your chance. Today's a chance to make that decision to follow him. Say I don't want to live in Psalm 22 anymore. I want to live in Psalm 23. He's paid the price. He's taken that song on himself so you can sing his song.